Okay, thanks, Jackie. Can I ask you please to open your Bibles uh, to John chapter 11 on page 1531? Uh, John chapter 11, page 1531, if you can have that open in front of you. And also make sure you've got a leaflet, uh, because on the inside there's an outline of what we're going to cover in the next little while. Uh, Thanks to Jackie for leading us in prayer that God's Word is actually at the very heart of who we are as a community and as believers. And so we're going to spend some time in God's Word. Um, Last week, we saw that incredible episode where, as a sign of who He is and what He can do, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. He resuscitated a four-day dead man and he did it to show that he has power to resurrect to eternal life all who believe in him, which makes sense. He is the resurrection and the life. Uh, What we're going to see this week are the immediate consequences of what he has just done because when he raised Lazarus from the dead, Jesus set in motion a train of events that are going to lead to his own death. Uh, and like last week, we're going to see the reading is going to come in stages, uh, actually two parts today. Firstly, chapter 11, verses 45 through 57, and then the first 11 verses of chapter 12. So first part, chapter 11, Min Lee's going to come and read for us. If you can have it open in front of you, page 1531, uh, John chapter 11. All right, the first Bible reading is from John 11, verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? They asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them named Caiaphas who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man died for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. Okay, thanks, Ben Lee. Can uh, you make sure you've got your Bibles open there and also grab that leaflet? You'll see point one, Caiaphas, the high priest, says Jesus must die. Um, As I said before, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11, um, he set in, train a motion, set in motion a train of events that are going to lead to his own death. What we're going to see in this section is the problem, the solution, and then the consequences. So firstly, the problem, verses 45 through 48. If you go back to the start of the passage, uh, we see there in verse 45 that, verse 45, many of the Jews who'd come to visit Mary and see what Jesus did believed in him. Many believed in Jesus. Uh, but at the same time, verse 46, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. 
With the result that in verse 47, the chief priests and the Pharisees call a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Okay, a couple of things to explain about what's going on here. You'll see on your handout, I've uh, written down that the Sanhedrin is basically the Jewish ruling council. The Jewish ruling council. So they comprised priests and Levites, uh, scribes and teachers of the law, Sadducees and Pharisees. They're the overarching uh, leadership group for the Jews. And basically, Jesus has fallen foul of the establishment. And that doesn't bode well. Now, part of the way to explain that, and you can see there, I've said on your handout, at this point we need to talk a little bit about regional geopolitics. Regional geopolitics, which is my way of saying that it's always been incredibly difficult and complicated in the Middle East. Um, At the time, Rome was the superpower, uh, and Israel, like many nations that had been conquered by her, was a vassal state. Uh, The Roman way was that when they conquered a nation... They gave the locals a certain degree of autonomy and self-rule, provided that they paid taxes and that they didn't rock the boat. That is, that there was generally peace and stability. In that context, what the Sanhedrin are doing is clearly affected by two different strands of their self-interest. Two different strands of self-interest. The first you see in verse 48. Verse 48 If we let Jesus go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Uh, At one level, they're conflicted by self-interest because if everyone believes in Jesus, then the Sanhedrin will lose popularity amongst the people. And they stand to lose their grip on power. So clearly, they're conflicted. But the other way in which we see self-interest is that If civil unrest ensues, that is, as Jesus gains the ascendancy, well, because the Sanhedrin are unlikely to go down without a fight, the Romans are going to clamp down hard on the entire situation, and everyone will suffer. And part of why that's important is because it's worth noting that over the years, the Romans had learned that they had to give the Jews an unusually high level of freedom. Otherwise, they tended to rebel. You see that, actually, in the little detail that's included in verse 48. Do you notice? It says in verse 48, the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Both our temple and our nation. The reference to our temple, I think, alludes to what was going on. Uh, Actually, uh, um, the Romans, they worshipped Caesar as a god, um, which meant that whenever they forced the Jews... Um, to try and do so, the Jews would rebel. They'd riot, actually. They considered it to be blasphemy. Uh, And so the Romans actually gave the Jews an exemption from temple worship and allowed their temple to stand. We know just how real the threat was, though, that Rome would come and take it all away, because just a few years later, actually, in AD 70, they finally had enough, and the Romans came and razed the temple to the ground once and for all. So here's the problem. With Jesus on the ascendancy, it's going to cause difficulties actually for the entire nation, but particularly for the Sanhedrin. And so point two on your handout there, on the left-hand side, Caiaphas's solution. Caiaphas's solution. At this point, the high priest, Caiaphas, he speaks up. And uh, as he does, well, I've got to say, it's like one of those sinister moments that you see in a political drama. 
You know the one where the president ominously says something like, I have to put the needs of the many first. And if that means I sacrifice one for the sake of the greater good, well, my hands are tied. So be it. That's basically what takes place. Look at what he says there in verse uh, 49. Sorry, verse 50. You don't realize it's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. And yet, clearly there's self-interest here. If they get rid of Jesus, the Sanhedrin stands to benefit. The thing is that what Caiaphas intends in a pretty callous Machiavellian kind of way, John expects us readers to interpret very differently. Because actually the way he records it is deeply ironic. So he records Caiaphas piously intoning, better that one man die for the people. When he does so, John wants us to recall that the whole reason Jesus came in the first place was to lay down his life. Look with me back at John chapter 1 verse 29. I put it there on your handout so you can see it easily. John chapter 1 verse 29. Uh, Here, um, the next day, uh, this is John the Baptist, not John the writer. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, referring to Jesus as the Lamb of God, it's a clear allusion to the Passover. You remember the Passover? We saw that in our Exodus series in term three. Uh, Here, whilst in captivity in Egypt, the Israelites were to sacrifice a lamb and smear its blood over the doorframe so that when God's righteous judgment fell on Egypt for her sin, the Israelites would be spared. That is, the lamb was a scapegoat something that died in their place, which means that when John refers to Jesus as being the Lamb of God, he's acknowledging that Jesus must die. Although, not to save them from Roman interference, to save them from the much bigger problem of sin. Uh, Actually, John is also being deeply ironic when he records what Caiaphas says in verse 52. Have a look at verse 52. Uh, Caiaphas didn't say, verse 51, Caiaphas didn't say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and to make them one. It's not entirely clear what Caiaphas is saying at this point. It's probably he's thinking of the fact that Uh, There are Jews outside of Israel, actually scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And in some way, he thinks that Jesus' death will serve to unite Jews everywhere. It's possible that's what he means. But again, John's being deeply ironic in the way in which he records this. He has just called Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The sin of the world. In fact, in verse 29, you can see I've written there on your handout... The word world is the word cosmos. Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the cosmos. John is saying that Jesus has come for something bigger than just Israel. 
He's come for something wider, more universal. He has come for something cosmic. For anyone who believes in his name, wherever they are in the world. And again, we readers expect that because back in chapter 1, that's exactly what he's anticipated. Chapter 1, verse 11, I've printed there on your handout for you. Chapter 1, verse 11. uh, Jesus came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Unfortunately, Jesus' opponents are so consumed by self-interest that we're told, verse 53, from that day on, they plotted to take his life. And at this point, they are really stepping things up a gear. See, all along, they've been hostile towards Jesus. In fact, if you look there on your handout, back in chapter 8, verse 37, they had been looking for a way to kill him. And the last two times Jesus had come to Jerusalem... Uh, Again, chapters 8 and 10 printed there on your handout, they'd tried to stone him or to kill him. But now we're told a concerted effort begins and a deadly conspiracy is formed. The consequence, well, thirdly then, finally, at the bottom of your handout on the left-hand side, as a result, we're told, verse 54, Jesus withdraws to the wilderness Jesus actually leaves. He withdraws to the wilderness because, well, even though it will be better for him to die for the people than for the whole nation to perish, even though that will be better, it's not his time yet. His hour has not yet come. Because when Jesus dies, and he must, when Jesus dies, it will be on his terms when he is ready to do his father's will. And actually, verses 55 through 57, the last part of the first reading, um, we're told that the next Passover is approaching. The Passover, the time when lambs are sacrificed. And so, let's see what happens next. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. Follow along. Thanks, Minley. Please turn to page 1531, John chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nut, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to be betrayed him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money back, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Verse 7, Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the days of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were 
going over to Jesus and believing in him. Okay, turn back please to start of chapter 12, page 1531. Uh, and you'll see on your right-hand side of your handout, on the leaflet, point two, our second part, Jesus says, I'm ready to die. Jesus says, I'm ready to die. Uh, chapter 12 opens, you would have noticed in verse 1, with a couple of important details. Firstly, we're told it's six days before the Passover. Uh, the Passover, of course, when the Lamb of God must die in place of others. But we're also told there in verse 2 that Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Now, just in case you've forgotten, <laughs> Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Uh, Bethany is only two miles away from Jerusalem. Uh, so in a sense, Jesus has come back to the seat of power where the Sanhedrin meets. And we're being told he's moving towards the final confrontation. What happens in chapter 12? Well, from verse 2 is that uh, we're told there is a dinner given in Jesus' honour for what he has done for Lazarus. Because once again, his raising of Lazarus from the dead has set in train a motion of events that will lead to his death. Now, like all of us, uh, I have been to some great celebrations over the years. Uh, to birthdays and to weddings, to anniversaries and victory dinners and retirement functions. But I wonder, can you even begin to imagine what this celebration would have been like? A dinner that's been thrown by the family to honour Jesus for resuscitating a four-day dead man. Just how over the top do you think Lazarus's sisters, Mary and Martha, would have been? Uh, how lavish would the feast have been? Would any expense have been spared? Just how spotless do you think Martha would have made the house? The thing is, that's, what's most remarkable about the evening, it's not the food and it's not the speeches, it's something entirely unexpected. It's Mary's extraordinary gesture in verse 3. Verse 3, Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet with her hair and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. It's worth pointing out that um, back then, uh, they wore open-toe sandals. There were open-toe sandals and roads were dirt. There was no paving, which meant that everyone's feet was always filthy. And so when someone came to your house, actually the reason you washed your feet wasn't just because they would bring the dirt inside. It was actually as a way of showing kindness and hospitality to people uh, in a context where actually that was quite hard to get. Mary, of course, in the foot washing, uses two pretty unusual products. We're told here, verse 3, she uses some expensive perfume and she uses her hair. Let me talk about each for just a moment. Uh, the meaning of the perfume that she uses, well, it's kind of obvious, I think. In using such expensive perfume, it's a sign of her gratitude. Jesus has raised her brother from the dead. No expense is going to be spared for him. Now, this might not surprise you, I know very little about perfume. Uh, so this week I did some research and I was amazed to discover just how expensive perfume is. Here is a little bottle that I've acquired. I didn't pay for it, I borrowed it from someone. 
apparently, a pint of perfume, which is the quantity that Mary uses, a pint of perfume today, would sell for around $500. But what she uses is something that we're told, did you notice, verse 5, it was worth a year's wages. At that point, I went and did some more research. I discovered from the Australian Bureau of Statistics that the minimum wage in Australia is just under $50,000, and the average wage in Australia is nearly $100,000. So, it's a $100,000 bottle of perfume that she uses. Imagine that. To use all of that when, to be honest, warm soapy water and a few drops for scent, that would have sufficed. But it testifies to Mary's devotion and her gratitude. And so the second thing that's unusual is that she uses her hair to wipe Jesus' feet. Hair when, again, to be honest, a towel would have made do. But I take it she does it as a sign of her love for Jesus, that she would freely and willingly give all Give anything for him. Once again, we readers, we readers who know our Bibles well, we sense John's deep sense of irony in recording this episode. It's ironic because actually in the next chapter, chapter 13, Jesus will wash the feet of his disciples because they will not stoop down to such a menial task. But first we discover how Jesus' opponents are finally going to get him. And it's through the tragic, sordid tale of Judas Iscariot, who we're told in verse 4, was later to betray Jesus. Judas, apparently, well, he objects to the misuse of the perfume, to this year's worth of wages being literally poured away. And to be fair, it does seem like a waste when we consider just how needy so many are amongst us and around us. And yet, once again, just like the Sanhedrin, Jesus is clearly motiva- uh, sorry, Judas is clearly motivated less by altruism and more by self-interest and naked greed. We'll listen to Jesus' response in just a moment. But before we do, and I don't want to get sidetracked, But I do want to pause and gently but firmly ask, could this be you? Could this be you? Of course not, we insist. We'd never do what Judas did. Yet what I want to say today is that what turns Judas into a traitor is not that he doesn't believe in Jesus at all. He does. It's just that he misunderstands what it is to be a disciple of Christ. Judas thinks he can follow Jesus and still achieve personal gain. Whereas a disciple of Jesus lives only to see Christ glorified. I'll say it again. Judas thinks he can follow Jesus and still achieve personal gain. Whereas a disciple of Jesus lives only to see Christ glorified. So sometimes you can't have both. 
So again, I want to ask you, could this be you? Of course, when I talk about personal gain, I'm talking about more than just material resources like money. It goes beyond that to the experiences that money can buy, to happiness, the desire for comfort, the need for success, the wish for satisfaction. One of the things we learn from Judas, I think, is that actually for a disciple of Christ, Jesus must come first because we serve him. He doesn't come to serve our needs. He has not simply come to fulfil our physical and material requirements. And in fact, unless Jesus is glorified, whatever we do will be a waste of time. Well, Jesus responds to Judas's question by reaffirming his mission. Turn over the page, uh, turn over the page to verse seven. Verse seven. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. What Jesus does is that he interprets Mary's extravagant gesture of her anointing him with perfume, interprets it not as a frivolous waste, but as the right and fitting preparation of his body for his death. I don't want to be macabre or ghoulish, but what we're basically witnessing is Jesus making his funeral plan. And that's the reason why in verse 8, he's not saying ignore the poor, rather, he's highlighting for us, don't miss the bigger picture of what's taking place right here, right now, before our very eyes. The episode will close then in verses 9 through 11 with a large crowd that's gathering. A crowd that's come to see uh, both Jesus and, you notice, Lazarus. Verse 9, uh, did you notice there how once again John adds that Lazarus was raised from the dead? Uh, in case we'd forgotten. As a result, the chief priests decide that Lazarus must also die not just Jesus, but Lazarus must also die because, verse 11, on account of him, account of Lazarus, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Now, can I just point out, um, sometimes we moderns tend to think that our ancestors, our ancient ancestors, we sometimes think that they were simpletons, that they were naive folk who had a primitive, irrational belief in spirituality. Can I say that's simply not true? They cared as much about the evidence as we do. And the opponents of Jesus, they understand that therefore getting rid of the evidence will go a long way to stamping out this Jesus movement. I guess the point for us is that if Jesus' opponents are out to get him, inevitably they go after his disciples as well. They always have in every era and they always will. And part of what that means is that the only way for a disciple to avoid persecution is to stop following Jesus. The only way a disciple can avoid persecution is to stop following Jesus. There is no such thing as a disciple who does not face opposition. 
all of which would leave us terribly anxious and deeply concerned. Except that Jesus is the resurrection and the life and so Lazarus, like all who believe in him, will be resurrected in the resurrection at the last day. Well, what does it all mean for us? You'll see on your hand it there, I want to say two things by way of conclusion. What does all this mean for us? Firstly, what we've seen in John 11 is that Jesus must die. Jesus must die. See, when he raised Lazarus from the dead, he set in motion a train of events that will lead to his own death. But when he dies, it won't be because things are out of control. It's not as if Jesus could have stopped it at any point. It's not like the universe decided that Jesus should die. The reason Jesus must die is because God willed it all along. Think of all the ways in this passage alone we've seen how Jesus will willingly lay down his life, not fatalistically, not as a victim, but he'll do so on his own terms. In the first part of the passage, we saw the irony of Caiaphas' prophecy that it's better for one man to die for for the whole nation. Now, in the second part of the passage, we saw in the way in which Jesus retreated to the wilderness and only came back when he was ready to die. And we saw it in the third part. In his interpretation of Mary's act that prepares his body for burial at a dinner that's been given in honour of him raising Lazarus from the dead. John is being very clear. Jesus must die. It is inevitable. It's not an accident. It's not a mistake. But it's still at his insistence. Again, we know that because back in chapter 10, printed there on your handout, John chapter 10, Jesus has said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. So, first thing for us to take away from this passage, Jesus must die. Second thing, why Jesus must die. Why Jesus must die. And the answer that we've seen is he must die for the sins of the world. He must die for the sins of the world, of the cosmos. He is the Lamb of God, so he alone can save us. We saw that back in John chapter 1. And actually, John chapter 3 reinforces our desperate need because John chapter 3 reminds us that by default because of our sin all of us are under the wrath of God and the only way we can be spared is to believe in the son of God that's the verse that I printed there near the bottom on the right hand side from John chapter 3 verse 36 whoever believes in the son has eternal life but whoever rejects the son will not see life for God's wrath remains on them. Why must Jesus die? Well, at one level, the answer is because we need him to. Because we need him to. Otherwise, we're sinners still under the wrath of God. I want to say today, I have no message more important to share with you this Christmas season. Nothing that's more significant than hearing this. 
You know, there is no basis for us to sing, as we did earlier today. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild. There's no point us singing that if we cannot also sing God and sinners reconciled. The solution that Jesus offers, it means nothing if we will not accept the underlying problem. That every one of us throughout the cosmos, we are sinners who need to be saved. Sinners who must be held to account. Actually, we are grossly offended if justice is not done. We are all sinners who need to be saved, which means someone must pay for our sin. Either us or Christ. So we need not be. I trust you can see this is why there is no better news I can share with you this Christmas season. Because it's such a relief. To know that all of us are sinners means there is no place for pride ever amongst Jesus' disciples. We're all sinners. None of us can save ourselves. What point is there in boasting? Just as there is no need for a disciple of Jesus to ever have to try to cover up our failings. Constantly afraid of being exposed, terrified that others will find out what we are like. Because all of us are sinners and none of us can save ourselves. Instead, I want to invite you, come and believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, And that by believing you may have eternal life in his name. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Why must Jesus die? Because we need him to. And what stands behind that? I guess the reason why God would go through all this is because he loves us. He loves us enough to give his one and only son that whoever believes in him will never perish but have everlasting life. I printed a few words there to finish. This is from 1 John 4. This is not John's gospel, but it's by the same author a little later in life as he reflects back, I think, on what Jesus has accomplished. Here's what he says. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one's ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Uh, it's, they're amazing verses. I could talk all about the implications about how God's love shapes the way in which we treat each other. But where I simply want to finish is to say this Christmas, come and behold him. Marvel at his unfailing love, which is steadfast and never ceases. And at his mercy that is new every morning, even this day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you've done for us in the Lord Jesus.
Thank you that whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you that in his death and his resurrection, we see the demonstration of your love. We pray that you might give us courage and confidence to be able to look to him each day, him who is our Saviour and Lord. We pray it for his sake. Amen.